Father, would you please speak? God, your, your word is perfect in every way. Your word is completely sufficient. God, you, you don't need me to stand up here, Lord. You just allow me to stand before your people. And so, Lord, in, in spite of my foolishness, in spite of my frailty, in spite of my unworthiness, God, would you speak to us this morning from your very word? Give us discernment to the right reading and interpretation of the holy text that you have passed down to us. Lord, we draw our strength from you and from your spirit and from your word as your spirit ministers to us through its reading and its preaching. Would you do that this morning? Father, those of us who need comfort, would you comfort us? Those of us who need encouragement, would you encourage us? Those of us who need to be challenged, Lord, would you challenge us? Those of us, Father, who need to be convicted, would you convict us all by the power of your Holy Word? God, we ask that you do this work by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things through the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to take it and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew once again in chapter 12. If you do not have your own copy of God's Word, feel free to borrow one from the back of the pew in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word at home that you own and call your very own, please feel free to take that copy from the back of the pew and keep it as your own and we will replenish it. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be beginning in verse 38. So whether you are looking in an actual book with pages or whether you're looking at a phone or a tablet or whether you want to follow along on the screen, I'd encourage each and every one of us, if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As We look together now in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. After we've completed verse 50, I will say this is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond with the words, thanks be to God. Let's turn our attention now to verse 38 in the word of the Lord. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil, an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand 
toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we continue in our sermon series, walking through the Gospel of Matthew in these 12 weeks, we have 12 sermons that begin in chapter 12 of Matthew. This is our third along those sermons. And so we have seen in the first sermon the Pharisees accused Jesus of violating the Sabbath. And we recognize that Jesus was violating their interpretation of the Sabbath, but not the actual Sabbath law. We also see that they suggest he is in league with Satan. You cast out demons by Beelzebul, they say. And he says a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so we come to this last section, and Jesus has just finished healing many. We just have record of Jesus healing somebody on the Sabbath to prove to the Pharisees that it is good to do good on the Sabbath. And they have everything backwards in their tradition. So a lot of healing, a lot of signs have just taken place. And yet the verses start off and the Pharisees say, Hey, could, could you show us a sign, Jesus? We really, we'd love to see a sign. And all of these healings, all of these miracles count as signs. So if Matthew is writing this chronologically, then we must assume that Jesus has just performed many signs before the Pharisees ever come up and say, will you show us a sign? And if you'll remember a couple weeks back when I made a row of students stand up and follow me around, the Pharisees are following Jesus around and scrutinizing his every single word. There's no way that they have missed the signs that he has done. Every bit of motivation for them asking for a sign is motivation so that they might trap Jesus, so that they might trick Jesus, so that they might make Jesus lose his honor among the people, lose his stature. Notice the difference between all of the people who come to Jesus and beg to be healed. When the leper comes before Jesus and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. We get the example of the men who come into the temple to pray and the one man beats on his chest. God, I'm not worthy to even come into this temple. The humility and the approach of those who genuinely need a sign, who need a miracle, who are looking for something from the Lord. This morning I want to make a distinction between people like that and what the Pharisees are asking. Listen, the Pharisees are not seeking for themselves to be healed. They are not desperately crying out to God. They are selfishly looking to promote their agenda by asking for a sign. It's, it's completely opposite to what we see when we approach Christ in humility. I know that there have been interpretations of this text that preach you should never go before the Lord and ask for confirmation. You should never go before the Lord and ask for a sign. You should never go before the Lord and ask for healing or a miracle to be done in your life because look what he says to the Pharisees. Look at how he treats these Pharisees. An evil and adulterous generation. That's Jesus' response. So surely we're not supposed to just go before the Lord and ask for a sign, right? That couldn't be what this passage is encouraging us to do because he calls the Pharisees an evil and adulterous generation. But it's because of where their heart was. It had nothing to do with them requesting something 
from Jesus. We have example after example in each of the Gospels of people approaching Jesus and begging for help. And when they approach Him in humility, when they approach Him and cry out in desperation for help from Jesus, He always makes a way to help them. There were so many that Jesus healed. The the last verse leading into verse 38 says, He healed many in that place. There's so many, they they didn't even count. They lost count of the number of people that Jesus was healing. Folks, I don't want you to walk away from the passage this morning thinking that it's inappropriate to ask God for confirmation. I don't want you to walk away this morning thinking that it's inappropriate to ask God to do something in your life. I don't want you to think that it is inappropriate to ask God to heal somebody or to pray for a miraculous movement in your life. Because over and over again, people go before Jesus and fall on their face and beg for His grace and His mercy, and they find it. When they need a sign, when they're at the end of their rope and they ask Jesus to intervene, He does. But if you go to Jesus and you ask Jesus to do something that makes you look good or do something that promotes your agenda selfishly or your reason to go to Jesus in the first place is through selfish ambition. You you remember the verse with me in Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Do nothing out of vanity, out of selfish ambition or out of conceit. If you approach Jesus in vanity and selfish ambition and conceit, you may possibly end up receiving the same answer that the Pharisees received. They they didn't care anything about somebody getting healed. There are people who are dying following Jesus around, and they're not asking Jesus, hey, Jesus, man, this guy looks really sick, and I know you just healed 5,000 people just a minute ago, but could you heal this one more guy? Because he really looks like he needs you. They're not even saying that. They're saying, Jesus, show us a sign. That we may know that you are the Messiah. And Jesus is like, man, let me tell you all something. The people of Nineveh are going to be better off than you. Folks, I know it may not seem like a slap in the face right now just off the cuff. That's a pretty heavy insult to lay against the Pharisees. The people of Nineveh were the people who destroyed the northern nation of Israel. After the nations separate, there's Judah in the south and there's Israel to the north. And Judah is conquered by Babylon, but Israel is conquered by Assyria, whose capital was Nineveh. Part of the reason that Israel no longer exists as a nation, as a united nation or a divided nation, is because of the people of Nineveh. When Jesus refers to Nineveh, he's referring to the nation as a whole and a and especially and specifically to the people who raped and pillaged and murdered their towns and destroyed their nation of the ancestors of these Pharisees. They're going to be better off than you. Folks, I'm just telling you, that's worse than saying to an Alabama fan that an Auburn fan would be better off than you at the Day of Judgment. It's, it's, It's worse than what you can imagine right now. Think of Jesus telling Osama bin Laden it would be better for him on the day of judgment than for you. That's how insulting this is to the Pharisees because this is a nation and a capital and a group of people that they despised because of what was done to them. Don't forget that Jonah didn't want to go. God said go to Nineveh and Jonah went in the complete opposite direction because he racially prejudiced against these people, hated them, and did not want them to repent. 
That same sentiment carries down through the generations to these Pharisees. And Jesus knows it. And he knows they're asking for a sign so that they can trick him and trip him up. And so instead he responds and says, You evil and adulterous generation, the people of Nineveh would be better off than you. Because at least when they heard the word of the Lord, they repented. Folks, I, I think sometimes we, we get it all mixed up. We think you've got to hear the word of the Lord and be perfect. But the standard Jesus sets with the Pharisees is the complete opposite. You have to hear the word of the Lord and repent. You have to hear the word of the Lord and make a change. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. doesn't mean you have to fulfill every letter of the law. It means you have to make a change. There has to be a change in our heart to where we see the value in Jesus and run towards his ways and run towards our, from our ways. Run away from our selfishness. Run away from our ambition and run to Jesus. There is a repentance that has to take place. And Jonah walks through the country of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, in Nineveh. He walks and says a five-word sermon. And all of the people rip their clothes, put on sackcloth, rub ashes on their head, and say, Woe is us! We believe the God of Jonah. And Jesus says, That's the response that you guys should be having to the ministry that's going on around you right now. But you're blind and you don't see it. And because of that, the people of Nineveh will be better off than you. Also, don't forget that in the book of Nahum, we read about the destruction of Nineveh and Assyria by Babylon. So even though the Ninevites repented, their repentance did not last. But at least an attempt at repentance was better off than the pharisaical pretending to ask for a sign, knowing better and not doing it from the get-go. That's the example that Jesus uses with the Pharisees. This is how you are an evil and adulterous generation. And then he moves on to another example and talks about how people came from all over the world. The queen of the south visited Solomon that she might ask about wisdom, ask about the Lord. She understood that God is real and that something special about this people Israel, something special about King Solomon. And so she goes all the way across the world to come and see him and see what's different about him. And Jesus says something greater than Solomon is now here among you and you don't even see it. Then he tells this very interesting parable. And he talks about when a demon leaves a person and goes through waterless places. He, he's talking about a demon leaving and then coming back. It's the same idea of being freed and returning, of repenting and coming back, of knowing better but doing it anyway. It's the pig that throws up, knows that it's throw up, goes away for a time and then comes back and consumes its own vomit. That's the story that Jesus is telling with the parable of the Spirit. The Spirit leaves and then comes back. And when He comes back, that person is up. All the house is put into order and the demon doesn't see that as somebody who's fulfilling every letter of the law so there's no space. Oh man, they're living the righteous life so I can't infiltrate in there again. No, they come back and they find, look at here. There ain't no Jesus in here at all. All they're doing is keeping everything real nice and tidy and clean. Now we got more space. So he goes and he grabs seven friends. Now remember, there's not 
too much to be placed on numbers, okay? Don't, don't put so much on the numbers that you go crazy with it. But there are significant things to numbers in Scripture. For the example, the number seven is the number of completeness because of the seven days of creation. So when the demon leaves, he brings back seven other spirits because now this person is completely overrun. The wholeness of their body has been overtaken by the forces of darkness. All because they thought, all right, that demon's gone. Now all I've got to do is just get everything in order and keep it perfect and keep my house neat and clean and tidy and they won't ever come back and it'll all be good. Folks, you're never going to be good enough. I'm never going to be good enough. Your house is never going to be clean enough. The difference between the demons being able to come back or not is the presence of God in your life. The presence of the Holy Spirit is a seal upon your heart. And when you say, Jesus, you're my Lord, my Master, my Savior, and you are in charge of my life, you invite Him to sit on the throne in your house, in your body, in your temple. These are all biblical words for what our bodies are. You invite Christ. When that happens, the Holy Spirit places a seal upon you and nothing can return. And you're going to mess up. And I'm going to mess up. We're going to be imperfect. But we're going to repent and we're going to strive and we're going to work. And when God sees us repent and turn and move closer to Him and further from our sin and love Him more and hate our sin more and love Him more and hate our sin more, it brings pleasure to our God and our Father. But you're never going to be perfect. And if you think, man, I got this licked and it's all good, boom, I'm ready to roll. But you don't depend and lean on Jesus. You don't trust Jesus to be not just your Savior, but also your Lord. Then the ending state of that man is worse than the beginning. This is the same thing with the Ninevites. This is the same thing with the Queen of the South. The Pharisees have the knowledge. They have no excuse. And because they have rejected Christ, knowing all that they need to know about Him, their last state will be worse than the first. Folks, I don't know how all that plays out in eternity, okay? And I'm sorry I can't give you a clear, crisp answer for that. I know that everybody who rejects Jesus will spend an eternity separated from Him. I know that Romans chapter 1 tells us that the very creation screams that there is a God. And I know after story after story after story of missionaries who have been on the field, of people who look around and go, you know, I just don't think this Buddhism is it. I just don't think this Hinduism is it. I just don't think Islam is it. But I look at creation and I know there is a God. Somebody who begins down that path, it's a miracle. Over and over again there are testimonies that I could call up missionaries and have them share with you that the Word of God finds its way into their path that week. That they begin dreaming dreams about Jesus. That the missionary crosses paths with them and starts sharing the gospel with them. No one has an excuse. And everyone who rejects Jesus, whether you've heard the gospel or not, spends eternity separated from the goodness of God. Spends eternity in a place of torment and torture. But what Jesus says here is it's, it's somehow an added judgment. 
for those who have heard and refused anyway. There's, there's some extra accountability for those who have had the Word of God in their hands, who've read it and sought to understood it and refused Jesus anyway. It's just like we talked about how earlier in these verses, Matthew writes that every one of us will be accountable for every careless word. Now, that judgment that we will experience doesn't mean heaven or hell, but there is some sort of accountability that we will have to have to God for every careless thought and word and deed. In the same way, I think there is some extra accountability. It's what Jesus is teaching us for those who hear the word and refuse it anyway. Who hear the word and turn aside. Because that's what the Pharisees are doing. And then, the last section of this passage, it moves into who the family is. So we've talked about hearing about Jesus and making commitments to him. And the reason that Matthew arranges this passage so that the very end of it is about the family and Jesus' mother and brothers coming to him and trying to talk sense into him, so to speak, is that sometimes repenting and turning to Jesus means everybody's not going to understand. I love that this gospel is arranged to where this story takes place right after He condemns the Pharisees for their lack of belief. And then there's an example of how far you have to go to really trust and believe in Jesus. And folks, I don't know about you, but but I am so prone and drawn to making my own family my idol. To making my own family who I love the focus of my life. And yes, our families are important. But there does come a time where you have to say, I serve the Lord, and my mother and my brothers are here with me among God's people in this place. Folks, there's added weight to this. Because it doesn't mention Jesus' father, Joseph, right? It says his mothers and his brothers are outside. Now, it's not spelled out explicitly in the text, but... It's implied that at this point in Jesus' life, it is very plausible that Joseph is no longer in the picture. If you remember, Joseph and Mary had no children before Jesus. Jesus is the eldest in his family. And so there could even be an added importance to them approaching Jesus by them saying, Jesus, you're the oldest son. It's your job to care for the family now that our dad's gone. It's your responsibility to carry on the family business. You've got to help make sure to take care of mom. You've got to help make sure to give guidance to the rest of the family. Jesus' response is that that's not my family. You see these people around here that want to do the will of God? That's my family. Folks, that's hard. That's hard. That means that We say no to other things for the sake of our church family. That means we say no to our family sometimes for the sake of our church family. That means that our families, our children, cannot hold the top seat in our hearts. Man, my kids are cute. Boy, they do the most adorable things. 
And I want them to have everything. When they want to play baseball, I want to take them and sign them up for baseball. I want to be there for every game. I want to do everything they want to do. I want to teach them how to ride bikes. I want to be there for them. I love my family back in Birmingham. I want to go and I want to visit them. I want to sit with them. I want to be with my brother as he walks through struggles and as he gets new jobs and as he goes to Japan and comes back. I want to see my nieces and my nephews grow up. But sometimes you have to say no to family and put them in seat number two, three, or four so that God and God's children can take seat number one. And that is hard And the world is seductive in this. The world and our culture wants to teach us that your life and your family and your world should be kid-centered. You know, there's even a lot of marriages that get on the rocks when the kids leave because their whole world has been kid-centered. And everything about their life has been being the cruise director for their children. And so they've been trying to do events and make their kids happy. And when their kids leave the house, they have no idea who they're married to anymore. This person who's been helping me raise the kids, who, what, what was her name again? Uh, man, she, she looks really good. Uh, uh, Jessica, yeah, that's right. You don't even know each other anymore. Look, just, just for your sanity's sake, just for your marriage's sake, it is a good and godly principle to love your kids and love them well, but your kids need to know your spouse comes first. In my household, my children know mommy is most important. Period. End of discussion. You don't disrespect mommy. Daddy is committed to mommy first. And sometimes you kids are just going to have to figure it out. Because I love this woman and she's my wife. And she may be your mom, but more important than that, she's my wife. She should do the same in response to me, and she does. And folks, that helps our kids. It adds stability and reassurance to them. Mommy and daddy ain't going to separate. Man, they first. Look at that. They own it. We can't separate them. They're on a team. There ain't no breaking them up. So not only does it help just in the development of your children, of our children together, but it helps our marriages. And then it takes us another step to realize sometimes, sometimes, don't go crazy with this now, sometimes we let our kids and our spouses and our families and our extended family, which are very good, become God. We take good things and we make them God things. And Jesus says sometimes there are godly responsibilities that outweigh even family responsibilities. That's hard for us in the South. It's hard for me. It's hard to tell my parents, my in-laws, we can't come. If we come, we're not missing Sunday. I'm coming back. I have a responsibility to my church family. Sometimes, teenagers, it means that God will put a call on your heart. He will put a call on your life. And you will have to tell your parents, God wants me to do this, not that. That will be hard. God's will for every one of these teenagers in this congregation and sitting in this section right here is not for every one of them to grow up and get an engineering type job where they're in the upper middle class and they have two perfect children, a boy and a girl, and then you as a parent become a grandparent of two kids and that's, that's the dream for your kids. That's what God's called your kids to. That's not always true. At the same time, I don't know that God has called every one of the teenagers in this room to go on the mission field and sell everything that they have. But you know what? I've heard Jake say this. I agree with it wholeheartedly. In a congregation, in a room this big, he's probably called some. 
Maybe not all, but some. And I know some of them are asleep right now. All right, I get it. I'm not going to wake them up. I could. That's just rude. I'm not going to do it. Maybe they're hearing it in their sleep. I don't know. We'll see. But folks, we have to come to grips with the fact that maybe God's plan and will for our kids is not to grow up and be in the upper middle class and be perfect little family nuclear units here that live 20 minutes down the road from us and we can go and see them and come back. God might be calling our kids to radical obedience that makes them give up everything and go for His glory. And let us be the parents and the family that supports them in that calling as opposed to making it hard on them to follow through with what God's calling them to do. And say, no, 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 that's not safe. This is not safe. Jesus' calling is not always safe. But sometimes His calling outweighs our responsibility to our family. There are unreached people groups who don't have the opportunity that the Pharisees had. They don't have a Bible in their language. They don't have a shred of the Gospel in a language that they can read and understand. They've never heard the name Jesus. And when you walk up to them and these missionaries find them and say, have you heard about Jesus? They start asking about Jesus like he's some dude from two villages over. Uh, Jesus, is that John's son? Um, no, George. He's with George. Not, not this village, but the next one over. They have no concept of who Jesus is at all. And some of us are called to go and be on the front lines for that. Some of us are called to bankroll missionaries to go and be on call for that. Sometimes that means sacrificing the so-called American dream and the perfect American family. Sometimes it means your kids do things that sacrifice for God that make no sense to us. We've got to love them and support them. Teenagers, listen, if God is calling you to something incredible in your life that is not the typical American dream, have the courage and the boldness to be like Jesus and say, listen, if you're, if you're going to resist me on this, I just want to remind you, I've got another family. I've got other brothers and sisters that are supporting me on this. Folks, it's tough. But these are harsh words from Jesus. He tells his mama and his brother, y'all be quiet. I got business of my father to attend to. Folks, it's hard for us. It's hard for me. Don't hear me standing up here wagging my finger at you. Man, I, I, I'm scared if one of my boys gets called to the mission field. It might cost their life. What if Lily's called to be a missionary? That's my little girl. Don't act like that doesn't hurt my heart. Don't act like that doesn't make me scared for them. But by God, if He's called them, I got to support them and love them. And not only that, I got to raise them to seek out that calling. Because there's a family that's more important than the five of us. Whether we realize it or not, or whether we live like it, or whether we act like it, this family in this room, the members of this church, the members of this family, supersede some of our own family responsibilities with our biological family. Folks, some people don't even have biological families. You're all the family they got. And Jesus is calling us to love each other in that way. Even to the detriment of his own biological mother. 
and he's going broke. Are we going to be like the Pharisees this morning and hear the hard commands of God but ignore them? There's an accountability we have to give to the Lord for that. And so, folks, I encourage each of us this morning, give your life to Jesus, whatever that means. Wherever that call sends you, wherever that call leads you, with reckless abandon, let us follow Christ and support one another as a family to reach the unreached, to share the gospel with those who have never heard it before, all for the sake of the glory of God and His fame, even at the expense of some of our own family relationships, if necessary. Let's pray. God in heaven, we love you. We thank you for dying on a cross for us. We thank you for giving your life for our life. To pay a ransom. A debt you never owed. A debt you didn't have to pay. But you loved us enough to do it anyway. You loved us enough to step into creation. To live among us in our muck and our sin. To rise above it and to be crucified even though you were the only one who didn't deserve to die. You were the only one who had never transgressed a single time. And Lord, we, we like to pretend to play church. We like to act like, yeah, we got the gospel, we understand. And then go about our regular lives in regular safe ways. Never seeking for you to do big and bold things. Lord, I, I pray that you just convict my heart and change my heart. Lord. Help us to seek you. Even at the expense of leaving our family. Lord, help us to love you. To be about your business and your mission. Even if it takes us far from our families. Or even if we have unbelieving parents that do not support us. And Lord, help us as a church to support one another and be those who are in your family who do the will of God. Oh, Lord, we, we need you to move among us. Pierce our hearts. Call us to obedience to you. Call us as parents to raise our children to follow you. No one else. Listen to you above all. Lord, we... We ask that you move during this time, that you help us, that your Holy Spirit, Spirit, you would help us to respond to the preaching of your word in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.